Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I got to catch up with my friend Dr. Brianna Jackson, an Egyptologist and the founder of Perhai Studios. She's taught courses at a handful of institutions, including New York University, City College, New York, Manhattanville College, and Pratt Institute on topics like ancient Egypt, Roman history, and art history. Her research interests are in Egyptian solar and lunar religion, the Amarna period, international relations during the second millennium BCE, and archaeogaming. We talked about how she went from desperately wanting to be a vet to Egyptology, why River God is the best book about ancient Egypt, her research into Amarna period religion, and her approach to archaeogaming as an educator. We definitely nerded out a lot together in this week's episode on all the things. I have such a weakness for the Amarna period that I actually asked her if she'd send me her dissertation bibliography just so I could read some of the fascinating material. I'm super excited, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on this fine afternoon. I want to start us off, like, just hit the ground running and ask you, how did you get into Egyptology? I love telling this story. And also, let me just say thanks for having me on here. This is such an honor. Yes, my my trail to Egyptology has been really weird, uh, or rather was, because I'm already an Egyptologist now. So (laughs) most people who are Egyptologists will tell you, I wanted to be one when I was seven years old. And I was not that kid. I wanted to be almost anything else. And it was my sister who wanted to be an Egyptologist, but she grew out of it. And then when I applied for university, I was actually going to be a veterinarian. (laughs) That was my thing. That's what I wanted to do. What I was at war with within myself was whether I wanted to do farm animals 
or pets. And so this was what I was considering. And then I ended up changing my major to French after my first semester at college because I really loved the language. I basically taught myself French in high school because my, oh gosh, I hope my French teacher doesn't listen to this, but honestly, she was terrible. And I taught myself the language. <laughs> so when I got to college, I had this teacher from France and she made it so exciting. And so I changed my major to this. But then at the same time, I was taking all of these courses in uh, ancient history, uh, ancient art, uh, ancient religion. And it was in October of 2008 that I decided, you know what, this is what I want to do. And it was when I was taking a class about ancient Near Eastern and Egyptian literature. We were talking about Akhenaten, we were talking about Egyptian religion, and that's when I was like, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do. I changed my major a third time <laughs> to classics, um, because that's what we had. And I spent, what was it, I think two years working on that major, and then, because I already had taken most of the elective courses, you know, and so then I applied to grad school. I got into NYU, and uh, 10 years after that, I'm here as an Egyptologist, a professional one. Yay! <laughs> well, I will say that it's so funny that you ended up the Egyptologist after not wanting to, to be one, because yes, I do have that very stereotypical, I had an amazing sixth grade class, and then came out of it saying, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. And then it was only the reality of, of high school uh, and then college that I was like, you know what? Nah, that's too hard. I don't have time. So sympathize with you there. And I also got my bachelor's in, in classics because that seemed more doable, even though looking at the reality now, I'm like, uh, was that really more doable? Or was I just tricking myself? Because I... <laughs> I have no idea. But okay, in my research before, I saw that you did specialize in the modern period and Akhenaten and religion. And I have to ask, when you first learned about Amarna and Akhenaten, was that kind of your first Egyptological love and you just loved it so much that that was just it? Or did you kind of dabble with other things? Because I also love Amarna and that's like that that stuff's my jam like that is my period I just was like I can't study this you know grad level. <laughs> well it was the Amarna period that made me decide Egyptology but it was not the first aspect of ancient Egypt that got me interested in Egypt to begin with to start taking classes and what got me into it was the second intermediate period where we have the the Hyksos ruling in the north and these were people from the Levant area it seems and so then they took over northern Egypt and then you had the Theban kings in the south and then eventually they rose up and fought against the Hyksos and reunited Egypt and I encountered this, and I think you'll love this, I encountered this aspect of ancient Egyptian history with the book River God by Wilbur Smith. Uh, <laughs> that is where I encountered, this is where I started loving Egypt. It was with that novel. And to this day, it's my favorite novel. And I've read it, mm, I want to say twice, because it's, I'm an emotional wreck afterwards. So, <laughs> but that's where it started. And that was in 2004. Okay, so was that the first popular novel of ancient Egypt that you picked up, or did you had you read some before and then you happened to pick up River God? That was the first one. Ah, so you're like me. Uh, I I was primed for it. My dad had like the big special edition hardcover, very fancy, and I remember growing up 
in our basement, I would see this big, very nice looking book on the shelf. And River God was that book where as a little kid, you know how sometimes you want to look really impressive when guests come over or what, like friends, family, whatever. And so you kind of are like, oh, oh, I'm just going to pretend I'm reading like a super intense book. So that was the book because it was on a shelf I could reach as a small child. So I would come and get this really big book and I was like, oh, it looks really pretty. And so it's the one I would fake read, quote unquote, whenever friends and family would come. They said, what are you reading there, kiddo? And I'd be like, show book. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> and then maybe it's because my age, no one cared to fact check me. No one cared to actually ask me what it was about. They just either knew I was lying and didn't pursue it, or maybe they thought I was. I don't know. I read a lot as a kid. I was reading oh, the Harry Potter good. books and all stuff growing up. Wow. So who knows if they actually thought I was reading it. So I had access to the book since I was young, but then I don't think I read it finally until like eighth grade. But yeah, I read it and that was it and it also became my favorite book of all time because it's so good and I've read it at least four times and then I discovered that was really hard because also I have ADD so I get really antsy and I'm like I don't want to just sit and read because I feel like I'm not doing anything Mm. but then I discovered there's an audiobook version of it read by the most wonderful man with this like deep voice and he does all the character voices And it's so good. So I highly recommend that if you would like to experience this novel and you don't want to sit and read, it's narrated by a dude named Mark Meadows. And he's just this wonderful, like deep voiced British dude. And you can get it on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks. But it's fantastic. And so I can listen to the beautiful story and take it in as I'm doing household chores or if I'm just (laughs) lying in bed at night. And it's oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. So highly recommend you know, this book. When I first started reading it I, and I saw that it was in first person, I was like, I don't want to read a book in first person. I hate that. But I was hooked on that first page. And that really says something about the storytelling of this author. Like it, it was insane. The rest, of, the rest of the series, I wasn't too fond of. I thought it got a little bit much <laughs> in, the, in the later books. But this first one, it, there's, there is something so special about it. And I actually encountered it because I was, I first started working uh, in a library when I was 16. And so I was a shelver. And so that's how I found the book. It was when I was shelving it. (laughs) Okay. It's the cover, right? Because the cover Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. People who have never seen this book, the hardcover at least has this gorgeous hieroglyphic looking scene. The middle of it is almost like in a cartouche, right? Mm-hmm. kind of um, uh, if I remember correctly but um keep talking <laughs> yeah it's 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 so beautiful it's a beautiful scene and it's it, it looks kind of like your standard Egyptian art so it's it's very colorful it's got this beautiful scene it almost looks a bit Tutankhamun-esque I don't know bow and arrow and it's it's basically it's this gorgeous cover I highly recommend that everyone read this book. It's just, it's beautiful. And yeah, uh, I think what you were saying about the quality of the storytelling, I didn't mind first person books at all. I just was very skeptical about it. And that first book, it's it's written in a style that's so descriptive. It's almost like a tale of two cities descriptive, but not quite Mm. like that. But he does such a great job of sort of setting the beautiful scene and the care taken to describe the setting is really what sets it apart among other things. But otherwise, yes, it's, it's a very, very, very good book. Highly, (laughs) highly recommend. And if you have other 
Egyptologist friends, I'm sure that it's really fun to sit around and, and talk about either the accuracy or just the excellence of this book. I don't know. <laughs> have you ever talked to other Egyptologists about the book? I have not. I have not. I kind of worry that other people will just hate it, you know, and I, I don't want my heart to be broken. <laughs> I have not met anyone yet who does not like the book so we're we're oh, doing pretty good but good. yeah I know I think I'll be heartbroken <laughs> if someone was like I hated that book and it, I, you know what I say it is the only book to this day it's true it's the only book that has ever gotten me to ugly cry in public <laughs> me too <laughs> oh god oh there was no shame no shame for me that day no <laughs> So I go, oh man, I could go on about this book forever, but I'm going to, I'm going to rope us back in here a little bit and take us back to something we also love a lot, which is Akhenaten and our Ma oh, yeah. Amarna and just like the weirdness of this. The religious aspect is really fun to consider. Were you also really big into the art of Amarna? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That was what struck me at first. You know, I mean, how could it not? And you, you look at those statues, the Colossi from Karnak, and how are you not moved by looking at these insane statues? They're so extraordinary. They are so different from traditional Egyptian art. For me, it showed somebody who was so creative, so innovative, and that's really something that I can respect a lot. And I know that that's kind of projecting onto this guy that we don't even know, right? We, we don't have his diary, so we can't know his thoughts or anything like this. And there is probably too much projection onto Akhenaten in the academic world, and especially the non-academic academic world. But at the same time, it is so hard to disentangle this sense of appreciation for this king. To an extent, you do know that this was all his idea because it was inscribed by the sculptor Beck in the Rockstila uh, in Aswan that Akhenaten himself came up with the art. You do have these glimpses of the reality and it's just it's so fascinating knowing that. Yeah, it was always my favorite thing to study personally, even more than the actual ideological aspect, which which I found really interesting because now I would say I'm almost the opposite, but it's something about the art, right? It's just that's the hook. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yes. For your dissertation, though, you focus a little on international relations, though, too, which is something that's really interesting because I was really big into international relations in college myself. I did Model UN, and I'm very into modern political international relations. So can you talk a little bit about how you wove ancient international relations into the Amarna period? This was for my master's thesis that I did that. The dissertation was just about the spread of Aten cults, but my master's thesis did incorporate my favorite king of all time, <laughs> Tushrata of the Mitannian kingdom. <laughs> I love this guy. That aspect of my research looked at the exchange of art between the Mitanni and Egyptians that showed a similarity in the way they represented their solar beliefs. And I examined how this might have actually helped them to build stronger foundations in their diplomacy by expressing a shared solar religion. So it was, it was a theological as well as you know, just looking at diplomatic aspect of international relationship. All of that makes sense. It seems like a lot to throw into a thesis, but that's why I focus just on the king. Uh, Tushrata, but this is something that I think can apply to a lot of the international relationships between Egypt and the Near East, at least the Near East. I'm not sure about Nubia, but 
I'm not an ideologist, so I think other people would be able to express that much better than I ever could. Well, it's so interesting just because I don't think I really associate that period of Egyptian history with quote unquote international relations only because after years of expansion with the 18th dynasty and how great Egypt was doing, I usually associate Amarna with everything shrinks and mm. the empire kind of tracks just because of the whole, it turns very inward. And if you're trying to move your capital and change your religion and do all these things, to me, that does not sound at all compatible with outward expansion because what you would need is a good, strong home base. I yeah, mean, that was my so- dissertation. <laughs> Really? Okay. That was it. Okay. What I talked about was the opposite, how uh, <clears throat> it is It is often discussed that Akhenaten built his temples in Thebes first and then moved to Amarna and then he didn't go anywhere else. In fact, this is not true. There were temples dedicated to the Aten all the way to the Sinai, from Sinai all the way down to Jebel Barco in Sudan. So these these temples were very, very well distributed, even in provincial sites like Akhnim, seems that there was a temple constructed there. And so what I discuss in my dissertation was, and it seems like the, the Nubian temples were built first. So I the way I look at it is it kind of started broadly and then it shrank, but then from Amarna, it went broad again. So it's kind of like a few different stages of the religion, not just the religion itself, we know that the religion developed over time, but the practice of it in the the widespread geography also developed over time, which I thought was really, really interesting because it, it, it looks like there were temples or chapels or whatever built in the early years in other sites like Heliopolis and Memphis. And then after the move to Amarna, more features were either added to those pre-existing buildings or new ones were built altogether. Okay. All right. Now I just have to ask though, since your research covers the the spread of Atenism, what do you personally think? Do you think that the Aten was, because I know it's a very popular strain of thought to think Aten alone as a god was not some new concept, but to, for it to blow up a lot of people, and, and I've thought about it, and I'm not really sure where to come down on this side of the argument, but a lot of people think it was a way for Akhenaten to continue to worship his father, Amenhotep, mm-hmm. because they were like, oh, well, the cult had been growing under Amenhotep's reign, so his son just decided that it was a continuation of his father being worshipped in that particular divine form. So it's not really weird. It's not some new thing. It's just his daddy. Where do you, you know, like, do you do you vibe with that? Or is that like, mm, maybe not? I see what you're asking. Uh, I like that you, you mentioned the word daddy because uh, I had some students say that Akhenaten had daddy issues. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I am convinced by that argument. He definitely did worship his father as a deity, his father directly. I would say no. I mean, there was, of course, a continuing cult of Amenhotep III following his death. There's a really excellent article about this by, oh goodness, I'm sorry, a scholar whose name I can't remember. Um, It's in David O'Connor's Fesh Trip. And in Nubia, Soleb, Amenhotep III, is depicted as a moon god and Akhenaten is worshiping him at a temple at the temple at Soleb in, in the art I mean and also in the temple at Sesebi. So th- there are aspects of Akhenaten worshiping his father as a deity. Whether the Aten itself is Amenhotep III, I'm not 
I don't know if I if I subscribe to that. I don't know if I'm quite convinced by this. I mean, that's that's really it's it's such a difficult question to answer because all while we have a lot of information about autism, we we have so much in the, in the art. We have the actual hymn to the autism, but at the same time, there's still so much that we can't understand despite all of the the details that we have, and it's so challenging. But yeah, I just I don't know if I am convinced by uh, Amenhotep the Third being the autism. Hmm. What do you think? <laughs> You know, it's so funny because whether or not that was a continuation of honoring his father. Yeah, we definitely agree. He had daddy issues. He had major daddy issues also because of the fact that he wasn't even supposed to be king. So I feel like just psychologically on on that psychological like scale, if you're not groomed to be king and you sort of accidentally get into it and then you I'm going to go very speculative here, but I'm going to assume that his father was not very happy when his chosen heir dies and kind of just goes, "Ugh, you, okay. You know, maybe he was a little, I, I don't know. Cause some, sometimes the history says he, he, he was a little deformed. He looked a little weird, which is why he wanted his art to portray him the way it did mm. because he had some defection, which doesn't surprise me if there's a lot of, incest which there was i don't know what the original prince tutmos was supposed to look like all i know is that if my daddy was like Ugh, now i have to take this Ugh, this is the second son yeah that's gonna give me some major daddy issues so which <laughs> well, is why i'm like you're right you might not subscribe to it because then you're like well why would you want to honor your father who was like Ugh, second choice there's also a question of the co-regency, which is a really hot button issue in Egyptology. Some scholars have said, maybe, have, I shouldn't have said, but they have argued that maybe there were a couple of years that they were ruling together. Others have suggested much longer than this, like even 10 years possibly, which would definitely have given Akhenaten a leg up on how to rule, in which case we would have to blame Amenhotep III <laughs> for optimism, really. I mean, if he had that much of a hand in Akhenaten's brain, then, you know, I mean, let's not put all of the blame on Akhenaten here. Again, you know, we, we don't know all of those details. And was even Amenhotep III Akhenaten 100% the second born or was he, you know, there's, there's a lot that we don't know. And I think it, it would be interesting to, to ask Ramesses II how he thought about all of his crown princes <laughs> kicking the bucket. <laughs> God, that's so mean. Why are we being so mean? <laughs> well, <like> you know, <laughs> we are being mean, but also there's only a point to which I feel bad. I'm like, well, these are like the most authoritarian crazies that ever existed. So I'm like, mm, I feel bad, but only to a point. They did a lot of very questionable things. And I'm like, mm, okay, sure, sure. <laughs> but okay, so there's so much we, can get, we could get into with your research, but obviously it's very weighty topics. Some of them are more hot button than others. So I want to take a little step back to when you were first getting into everything because it's it's clearly obvious that what you're doing now is awesome and it's amazing and your dissertation sounds oh, wonderful thank you and hopefully it, it helps other future scholars find more answers but before you even got around to doing all this cool stuff we've just been talking about did you have any doubts like when you switched over 
and graduated and was were just thinking about grad school. Did you have very supportive parents or did you have parents who were like, no, you shouldn't do this. Oh, please. No, gosh, get a job that will make you real money. Like, don't spend the next decade in school fighting for 50 jobs. <laughs> actually, my father died when I was 15. So uh, I think he would actually be very pleased with what I did. My mom has always been very supportive. She, she has always told me, get your education first and then, you know, think about your family if you want to have one, blah, 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 blah. So that was always really wonderful. And I never applied for graduate school in my last year <clears throat> sorry, of undergrad. So um, it was just from one to another. And I'm the kind of person who won't do something if I think I will regret it later. So I never had a moment of doubt because I, I made that choice. Like it was, it was in a flash and I was like, you know what? Because at the moment I was, oh my goodness, and no offense to my former uh, library co-workers, um, but <laughs> I was a children's librarian before I moved to New York for the degree. And so I was putting myself through undergrad with this job, but I knew that that was not something I wanted to continue. And I knew that if I didn't go into Egyptology, that's what I would regret. I knew that there was a huge risk. I knew that there was a possibility that I would probably, uh, not probably, that I, that I might uh, be completely unsuccessful, but that's not what bothered me. What bothered me was not taking the risk. Okay, so once you made the decision, which is awesome and admirable, because I know <laughs> a lot of people when you kind of get to the end and you're sitting there facing all these hard decisions and the reality, they get pretty scared. I mean, I definitely got scared away for a lot of reasons. How did you find the process itself of, you know, finding a program that was good for you? And did you feel hindered at all by the fact that, you know, Egyptology is very exclusive, so you can't just go anywhere for it? I mean, did you feel pressure? Yeah. Yes, I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew was that <laughs> that was what I wanted to be. And I didn't really know what I didn't even okay, this is going to be so weird. I didn't even know what graduate school was until 2008. Like I'd never heard the term before. I know <laughs> people listening are probably like, what is wrong with you? But I didn't have academic parents. My dad worked in a hospital as an, a clinical engineer and my mom uh, I was a stay-at-home mom, right? So I didn't have anybody who knew anything about academia in my family. And that's totally fine. It's just, I'm just saying that I didn't know anything. I was kind of going into the whole thing blind, but I did have a wonderful mentor in undergrad who gave some pointers. She said, here, why don't you apply to this school and this school and this school? And one of the schools she recommended was uh, NYU, the Institute of Fine Arts. So I applied to that one. And then I ticked a little box saying, yeah, uh, uh, let me know if you want to select me for a master's degree. Sure, sure, sure. The thing that my mentor didn't know was that master's degrees are more popular now before you get into the PhD program. And you're likely not going to get into a PhD program right out of undergrad. And I don't think she, she was aware of that because, you know, she's from a different era. <laughs> I applied to one school that I really wanted to go to and I didn't check the little master's degree box and I got a very not nice rejection letter. <laughs> that was that hurt that hurt and so what I did was I ordered a lot of Thai food and then I watched this hilarious French movie that made me feel better but but luckily I got into NYU's master's program because I was smart enough to check that little box after the whole 
other university event. <laughs> it was fine because I ended up studying under the most amazing advisor anybody can st study under, and that's David O'Connor. Hey, so it worked out for you. But actually, you bring up a really great point, which is for a lot of people, not everyone is lucky to have either academic parents or good advisors. So I think it was really fortuitous to have that undergrad advisor. I mean, that just makes a case for if you don't come from a super academic background, you come from other really useful backgrounds. But but if it's not connected to academia, would you say, does that, did you feel like you were put at a little bit of a disadvantage or was that oh. actually not as big of a hindrance as people make it out to be because I know a lot of people when I talk to them they get very discouraged and they just say you know it's a complete disadvantage if you don't have a foot in the door or a connection and you know a lot of times I just want to yeah. say that that may not be true but finding it's... examples is a little hard <laughs> you know for, for me I would agree that it is a disadvantage not so much with the connection even if you are well connected that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get somewhere because maybe some you you know this person but maybe they just don't like you you know so so there's that but i think the disadvantage is in the ignorance of what you're supposed to do what to expect what kinds of questions you're supposed to ask there were so many times and i'm trying to think of an example and i can't ever think of an example where i was just like wait that's a thing i didn't even know that was a question to ask so you don't even when, when you aren't in this zone if, if you're not in this if you don't have the same background as other people uh, let's say somebody else has more of an academic background they know the, the details that somebody who isn't from an academic background they know things that the other people just won't know just because they're familiar with it right they're they were raised in it they have parents who might say look you're going to come up against this this and this but when you don't have that, you're just you're going in there quite blind. And, and I know you, you have advisors and you can go and you can ask them things. But there are students that don't even know that they can ask their advisor things. Like they don't even know they can ask a question, that they can ask a question, let alone not knowing what questions there are to ask. So for instance, with me, I, I, I luckily I have a kind of annoying personality where, <laughs> where I just, you know, if I want to do something, I'll go over to the person and be like, hey, I want to do this. Can I? Sure. All right. But there are people who don't know that they can do that. Right. And so that was that was one thing I was really happy about with my own experience. When I first got into the NYU program, my advisor was not teaching the first year. And this was the master's program, which is only two years. And I'm like, but I need him to know who I am because I have to apply for PhD programs next year. And so he was on sabbatical for like the first year or whatever. So what I did was I emailed him and I said, I need you, I basically need you to know who I am. So I would like us to do an unofficial independent study class. And, and I gave him the topic of uh, cosmology and architecture. So he said, okay. And so he came to the university once a week and we just sat in his office talking about architecture and cosmology. And that helped me a lot, I think. And so this other time he was, he actually told me that the way you get things out of your advisor is you have to nag them. He just told me this in passing about some other student who, who was nagging him because I would nag him on her behalf also. <laughs> and so he said, yeah, that's how you get things. And I said, I know, but I feel bad nagging. He's like, no, that's, that's what you have to do. I think a lot of people who aren't in the academic background and who just don't automatically think to do that uh, they don't do that and so 
this is part of what a disadvantage is. So they won't get answers because they don't know to ask and they don't know what questions to ask. And I did come upon that across that myself quite a lot. And that was a really long answer to that question. I'm sorry. It's great. And it's really, really useful. And so as someone who dealt with that, which is very valid because yeah, if you don't know to ask, you're not gonna, you're not gonna know. So as someone who kind of had to deal with that, do you have any potential ideas of how to make it better and how to make it easier for future students so that they don't have to feel like they have to nag their professors into it sort of by accident? Or I I feel like you can discover the way you did how to get those answers, but to avoid future ones. Because one thing I always talk about a lot, both on the podcast and just in personal life, is academics really love putting up artificial barriers and we just love making it so hard for people to come and join us. And I'm like, that is wrong. That really ties into it. To me, that's that's an artificial barrier where if we're not freely handing this info out, but at the same time, I understand the logistics of to try to even get the word out and show people these resources. That's not just, that's very much easier said than done. But as someone who encountered this in a way that I perhaps didn't, I mean, I didn't have parents who wanted to go into ancient studies, but I had a parent go to law school. I had siblings go to grad school themselves. So I had it a bit easier. What do you suggest we do? Like, is there a good way to suggest these resources in a way where students will not feel awkward about it? Because I have a lot of friends who didn't feel comfortable talking to professors because they were like, yeah, they might say they want to be nagged about it, but you know, it's awkward. And there's the whole well, I, now I feel like I'm annoying them and, you know, they'll get mad at me. Right. There, there's always going to be the problem of confidence, imposter syndrome that is debilitating for a lot of people and for everybody at some point, even when they're professionals. I think a lot of people hold back because of that. And I feel like sometimes we are encouraged to have imposter syndrome, to be quite honest with you. I think everything should start with orientation in graduate school. You should actually have the professors there saying, look, this is your degree. This is your future. This is your life. You have to take what you want. Come to me and talk to me. If you're nagging me, who cares? This is my job, you know, and and I have have tenure, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're supposed to take advantage of that. But I mean, of course, be 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 nice. But um, at the same time, if you want something, you, you need to, to do what you need to do to get it. Oh, God, that's well, no, maybe not. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Within reason. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> don't offer think- yourself up like a sacrificial lamb. I mean, please don't. <laughs> don't promise anyone you're first born in a pint of right. blood. Exactly, exactly. But also, it is a time to be selfish. And I don't mean that to be, you know, really nasty and, and pushy and all of this kind of thing where, where you're where you're stomping on other people to do it. But you have to realize that this is your life. And if, if they want to feel annoyed, that's on them, you know, because you can't tell somebody how to feel. All you can do is say, this is what I need to do in my life and I'm here and I'm paying money for this graduate school. I'm supposed to have a mentor. They're supposed to mentor me. This is what mentors do. If you start having conflicts, then you should talk it out. For me personally, and maybe it's just because I'm really lucky to have had a really wonderful advisor, I believe so strongly in transparency. 
if you're having an issue in your personal life, tell your advisor, especially if you're in the middle of taking exams, if you're in the middle of writing a proposal and you need to take a couple of weeks, you need to take those couple of weeks and just tell them, look, this is what's going to happen. I need to take, you don't ask them, can I please take a couple? No, you take those weeks, you tell them, look, this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing. My advisor told me once that my life is a cartoon. It's so right. There's always some kind of weird disaster that happens in my apartment when, when I'm doing something. So when I was studying for my comprehensive exams, and I live in the Bronx in New York. <laughs> I got bed bugs. And it was because my neighbor oh. moved. He had them and he didn't tell anybody. And when he moved, they all, they all marched into my apartment <laughs> because, you know, they needed somebody to chew on. And... <laughs> and that took for you will not know paranoia until you've had bed bugs let me tell you so that was when I was studying for orals which is very stressful in itself but then when you add this whole two-month process of getting rid of pests and the hilarious thing is I got a, a cockroach issue right afterwards it's like, I can never cut a break guys this is New York living okay this, it, 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 this is just how it is <laughs> with the whole process you have to vacuum every single day you have to take all of your books and your clothes you have to wash all of your clothes in high heat dry them in high heat you have to take all of your books you got to vacuum your books you got to vacuum your shoes you have to put everything in plastic and you have to pull all of your furniture away from the walls you have to vacuum your your bed constantly and you have to take the electric plates off the walls and and so because you would have two weeks to do this because that's when the person with the spray comes in and then two weeks after this they spray again and this whole time you got to be vacuuming so anyway so for those first two weeks of preparation i told my advisor look i've got this issue and I need two weeks and that's just what's going to happen. And he told me, and he totally understood. I mean, how could you not? And, and he told me to take solace with my cats because they know when you feel bad and they will help you. <laughs> that was his advice. <laughs> yeah. It, was that a really weird thing to bring to an advisor? Definitely. Was it necessary? Yes. Because I needed that time. I needed it. Hopefully your advisor is understanding. And if they're not too bad, you know, you, you take the time that you need to take. You're paying for your degree. You're working your butt off and you just have to, you have to put yourself first. That's I the best advice all, I can give, I think. Yeah, I think that's all really valuable advice because I don't know, sometimes it's a little scary to go to an advisor, somebody who ostensibly is there to guide you, but also in a position of seniority. So it, it can be a little intimidating to have to go to someone, especially with like a non-academic issue where you you assume that this is this is what they're here for. No, it's like the random, hi, I have a life issue, but also I promise it ties into my academic issues. So mm-hmm. this is what's going on for sure. Can, can definitely sympathize there. Also, ew, I feel terrible, bed bugs. I have been very lucky to never ever in my life have had to deal with bed bugs. But when I was in grade school in like fifth or sixth grade, we had an outbreak of lice in our classroom. And we had this corner in our classroom where we had like bean bags and some other comfy sort of pillows and stuff where you could go read 
and it's like winter and in Chicago. And so it's really cold. And if you could get a note or permission or whatever to basically have recess inside so you didn't have to go outside, like everyone was basically trying to get their parents <laughs> to write a note like, no, I have a condition. Mm-hmm. I have a cold. I need to stay inside. I don't want to go outside. Yeah, people would just lie on these pillows and put their heads everywhere. And it was bad. So I sympathize because unfortunately <laughs> I was a victim of the lice infestation and oh yeah no it's annoying because not only do you need to get the weird hair product but then you need to have a parent or somebody take the weird comb and then get the whatever out of your head and then it's like you can't sleep on anything because it'll infest it so then you're basically putting plastic on your pillow and I'm like why am I sleeping on my head is on a plastic bag, which is on my pillow and you're constantly washing your sheets and you have to blah, blah, blah. At the time I was pretty young. So I still had a bunch of stuffed animals and they were like, well, all the stuffed animals have to get dry cleaned because- Oh gosh, I thought you were going to say they had to get thrown away. I've been like, no. My parents wanted to, but I was like, no. Luckily I got away with, they said, they said either we're going to dry clean the bigger ones or you have to wrap the stuffed animals in a plastic bag and then you have to put them away in storage for like a month or something to make sure that they just die because it can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like a whole thing. So I sympathize because that's a, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. And that's the first time in my life I actually got to wear a bandana because I was supposed to travel with, with my family to Maine. And so my sister, she's great with like the oil. So she basically put like tea tree oil in my hair to make them die and go away. But then I was like walking around with wet hair. So she's like, here, wear this bandana. So that way you don't get oil over everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, I look ridiculous. But it was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting summer to oh say the goodness. least. And I'm glad oh. that that was the first and last time, yeah. most importantly, that I ever have to deal with that, which, yeah. It's such a process. Why I hate pests. <laughs> right? I was like, well, if you, I swear, if you deal with something that's pest related, you're like hyper vigilant for the rest of your life of, yeah. Yes. No pests. Yes, exactly. So we're prepared. (laughs) My ceiling collapsed twice also. Once when I was doing my dissertation proposal and then again last September, two different sections collapsed. Okay, so we're going to just say that you've had to deal with a lot. And so then you've had to find ways of like calming yourself. So cats were great advice. Mm -hmm. But the other one then, so other than your cats, that your ceiling collapsing, unfortunately, (laughs) is a great segue for me. So I'm going to shamelessly use that (laughs) and say when you go through a lot of stress like that and you have your cats, when you need to feel better, I will assume that since you are also an archaeo gamer and lover of pop culture i'm assuming that you retreated into some beautiful entertainment and and so as an egyptologist yourself do you like movies about egypt or are you like oh no i study the real thing and it's just it's so misrepresented on screen <laughs> that i can't deal with this oh i love movies about egypt and i love hating them and i love loving them an example of one I just hated was the pyramid. Have you seen this one? Came out in 2014. It's a quote unquote horror. Oh no, because I am so ever. scared of horror movies. I can't like I, I don't watch horror oh. movies. I get oh, too scared. Oh, I see. But this one was ridiculous. There is a three-sided pyramid that apparently belonged to Akhenaten, and that was the only time they mentioned it once that it was Akhenaten's pyramid, and then they never mentioned him again. And then there's like a demon Anubis who's mixed with the devourer Amit and like it's it's ridiculous 
so ridiculous. I hated it. I hate. I wanted to do a review of it, and so I watched it like a couple of times. And I'm like, why? Why am I doing this to myself? I hated it. But I love Stargate, and you know, there is there there are two ways to do movies about ancient Egypt if they're not documentaries. <laughs> they can be really ridiculous and silly, but also work, or they can just be completely terrible. <laughs> The ones that work are, are Stargate, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> the Mummy with Brendan Fraser, of course. Like, who doesn't love that one? Anybody who makes fun of that movie, I'm just like, you know what? You take yourself way too seriously. Thank you. <laughs> but Stargate is fantastic. Even though it's about aliens, it's brilliant. Thank you, Stuart Tyson Smith. <laughs> He's the one who consulted on that. So he did a brilliant job. And I think because they interweave humor and they don't take it seriously. They know that they're not giving a documentary. Whereas these other ones that take themselves seriously are really offensive. <laughs> yes, I do not watch modern TV documentaries about Egypt because those make me angry, you know, like the ancient aliens. <laughs> Nobody should be watching those. <laughs> but yes, and, and then I, I play video games. I'm glad you brought up video games. I played a lot of Skyrim, of course when I'm stressed. I made a lot of different characters. I also play Mist game. I don't know. Have you heard of Mist? Nope. From the I'm 90s. Not. Oh my gosh. So it's an adventure game and there's like a whole series of it. And then the creators of this game made a new game called Abduction, which I have a poster of on my wall right here. The first time my ceiling collapsed, <laughs> I actually wrote a video game guide for this game, Abduction. That's how I relaxed by making this really weird technical thing, which I ended up being able to publish with the developer's permission. And they gave me their logo to slap on it and all of these other things. So I did that. And then with writing my dissertation, this is when I started doing actual projects, digital projects about Egypt. Because as you know, it is so stressful to do your research during pandemic and you know and everybody's having a rough time but when you're trying to finish dissertation in a quarantine when it's next to impossible to to get resources and all of these other things this is very stressful writing a dissertation by itself is stressful so i de-stress by getting into archeo gaming my thing is city builders i love city builders and so i started making uh let's play videos of these city building games starting with pharaoh and my, my target audience is actually gamers because I'm in that community and I like watching other gamers play games and all this other stuff. That's been cool. And I saw that Archeo Gaming really exploded in 2020. Like it became a thing, <laughs> capital T. And so this was really exciting to me because back in 2014, I had this idea that I thought was brilliant, if I do say so to myself, that I wanted to teach ancient Egypt in part using the game Pharaoh, but nobody was into it back then. No, nobody thought this was serious. Nobody liked this. I was looked down on for even playing games in graduate school. And it's been so interesting to me that now it's really, it's, it's a happening field. And so I'm, I'm excited to be getting further and further involved in the subfield of archeology. span And of course, I've also started playing Assassin's Creed Origins, which I actually bought back in 2017, but I just did not have time to play it. And so I'm finally playing it now on and off when I can. And then I also started making my quote unquote TV show, <laughs> which I called Ancient Lives on the Nile. 
and then my ancient Egyptian object stories videos. So all of these technical things were started off as me trying to just calm down, <laughs> de-stress, focus all of this pent-up psycho energy into something creative. And that's, that's how I can get through stress when I can channel that stress into something creative and just make something, even if I don't, even if it's not an end product that I share. Uh, sometimes I just randomly make pie charts, for example, because it's entertaining for me. I'm such a nerd. Oh my God. <laughs> well, that's a new one. A lot to unpack there, which is fine, which is fine. Just wow. A lot to unpack there. But yeah, no, it's, it's so funny because I also was really into Arceo gaming when it wasn't really, a th- I was marginally aware of Dr. Andrew Reinhardt's pioneering mm. book, Archeo Gaming. And I was like, you know, this seems pretty interesting, but no one's going to take me seriously. No one's going to take it seriously. They're going to say this dude's just kind of out on a limb. So I didn't really do anything with that until, yeah, pandemic hit. Yeah, I've always been a gamer. I played the game Pharaoh way back when. And then I expanded that to I was a big civilization player. Mm. So I would always choose Egypt as my civ and I would dominate the world. (laughs) You know, I was like, oh, man, this would be so cool. Because I remember wishing that I had teachers who would teach the ancient world using either video games or technology. And then when Assassin's Creed Origins came out, I was like, this is like the best game ever for teaching. Please, like, I use this somebody. And by then it was, I was basically graduating and, and um, that didn't, it didn't work out. But yes, I also channel a lot of my energy into creating. So I highly sympathize with you there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's awesome that you want to teach ch- like students with games. And, you know, is it something that, you really think you're going to continue? Because I'm always coming up against skeptical people. I mean, yeah, it blew up in 2020, but I think a lot of people are still like, it's very much like an academic subfield, very niche, not popular. And even if a bunch more academics are kind of on that train, there's still a lot of, you know, skeptical parents out there who are like, these video games are going to mush my child's brain into nothing. I will allow them to learn with a video game when hell freezes over. As an Egyptologist, as a scholar, I mean, you have the creds now, right? You you just got your doctorate. So now you have that fancy doctor in front of your name. So that lends you automatic credibility with a lot of parents. You know, how would you make the argument that learning via video games is actually quite valuable and not just sort of a, a waste of, of the child's time? I, I find it to be so valuable and not even only kids, you know, not just elementary, not just high school, but also college level. I really do think that it's valuable to everybody. And and you're right. I think that there is a worry that many people, many scholars might consider it as passing gimmick because technology develops so quickly. We really, we really will have to see where this goes and just kind of go with the flow of it but it really it does depend on the games that are used you definitely have to be vetted i'm actually working with sasa on one of their archaeo gaming modules that they're putting together i'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah so here's where i'm going to do the little interlude spiel before you finish your answer which is sasa stands for save ancient studies alliance they are an organization a nonprofit dedicated to all things saving the ancient studies, and that's all of them. 
And yes, for anyone interested, check out everything they've done because it's awesome. And yes, I have actually done an Archeo Gaming event with them myself, and I have led a few of their events, and I am a live events volunteer with them as well. And Spiel, please continue. <laughs> well, one of their projects that they're working on is they, they got this wonderful grant to work with New Jersey middle schools to teach antiquity through video games. And so I'm participating in that with the, the wonderful Kate Minetti, who I think you also know. Those who are listening do not know her, you will know her. She's everywhere and, and don't worry, you, you will know her. <laughs> she's, she's absolutely glorious. So I'm working with her on one of them. And so we are certainly taking note of what games have potential to teach. Now it must be remembered at all times that games are also entertainment. So they're not going to be 100% accurate, but using aspects of them to teach concepts, I think, is where the benefit is. One thing that I'm particularly interested in with the city building games, I love city building games, is the way that they put the games together. They start with early settlement and then they progress, right? And so as you rise up in levels with the missions, the game gets harder and harder because more aspects of culture are added, new administration is added, this kind of thing. And so the way that I interpret this is a really excellent tool to teach the development of the state to teach urbanization and to look at how civilizations develop their administration, their culture based on, you know, they encounter this innovation, which leads to this innovation and so on and so forth. And so I think that those games are an excellent learning tool for the concept of development of a civilization in general. And then you have games like Assassin's Creed Origins, where they have these really great pockets of quite realistic tutorial representations or visual representations of antiquity. And you can use those to teach as Sasa has been doing, which is really great. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of value with them and it will take a lot of scholars getting into games in general, I think. And not just looking at the games to critique them and say, oh, okay, well, I've never played this game, but I don't think it's useful for this, this, and this. But people who play the games, you know, making it more of a normal thing to bring academics who do enjoy playing video games to the front and saying, look, this has value because of all of these reasons and just continuing to implement those. And I think everything will go on from there. I mean, like I said, said it, it everything changes so quickly in technology there are some games that i've played where i would just in new games actually that i would just never in a million years recommends because uh, there there was actually a conference that just took place yesterday and the day before and their twitch handle is archaeogaming underscore con they have a youtube channel as well so if people are interested you can look at those videos and one of the panels they had was on stereotypes in video games and this is something that if we are going to use archaeogaming continuously or to continue using it going forward that we make sure that we can point out what those stereotypes are and even use those as methods of learning saying look this is what they're presenting egypt as but actually it was more like this but I mean yeah it's it's such a great tool to use these games so we just have to make sure that we pay very close attention to what is being used I don't have to tell you that of course <laughs> yeah it's a very wide-ranging area that you could go anyway with and yeah I think you know when presenting it to parents eventually educators will have to sort of 
pick the highlights, pick certain games and yeah, present like a cleaner version for kids, depending on, on age level, of course. I mean, if you're trying to incorporate Archeo gaming with the undergrad level or even the graduate level, you can leave it, you can put a lot more nuance in and really talk about things. And then you don't have to worry about things like maturity warnings because obviously everyone is older than 17. But yeah, I mean, if you're trying to go younger with fifth, sixth graders, you have to leave a lot out. And I would say, you know, that's something that I definitely grappled with. I've also been working as a partner organization with SASA on their Archeo Gaming project. We were one of the earliest contributors. We worked on developing two Archeo Gaming videos together on Ancient Greece using Assassin's Creed Odyssey because, woo, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> and one of the very early things that I really found myself struggling with was how do I present a clean version for fifth graders without sort of completely destroying Greek myth and history? And and the answer to that is it's actually really hard. And no, you are just going to have to leave things out. So we did a video on Knossos. I believe we you might have seen it. It was featured on Digital Hammurabi's Ancient History Day as one of the two videos we submitted. And we got to the story of the Minotaur. As we know, in mythology, the x-rated version king minos's wife was well cursed to fall in love with the bull and that's how the minotaur came to be and he was just so pissed about it that he locks it away so i was like how do i present a family-friendly clean version of this to like little children and i was like well i don't want to talk about cheating or like weird gross aspects i kind of just realized for things like being able to present it to children i had to kind of lie slash fudge the truth and so i just said menace is the minotaur's father because you know i'm not gonna be the one to explain cheating so i'm just like well because then you know i was like well little kids are gonna be like but that's his wife's son so why isn't he the daddy and i was like all right you know what technically he's the stepdaddy the very unwilling one so we're just gonna say he's his daddy so because i got a comment on like youtube and someone was like you realize he's not his father and i'm like i know if this were made oh. for college students it would be abundantly clear for fifth graders. Mm. I had to just find the clean version. So it's his daddy. I think it's <laughs> it's making choices like that. And we're going to find ways of, of either explaining the nuance later or just leaving things as they are. But I'm really excited to see where RQ Gaming goes because I think it is a growing field, definitely, especially with depending on how long the pandemic goes, people are just going to find more and more that it quite handy and useful and wonderful but also i want to get a little into you are the creator of perhey studios right yes <laughs> yes so what is your end goal with your studio like what do you want it to achieve i started it as uh okay so back in the 1990s long long ago <laughs> my parents would always watch this show called mysteries of the bible it was on the a and e channel or something and the voices of the narrator always made me feel really calm and so i just i just love this documentary and the way they format it is they have narrators they have scholars who go on and give their expertise and then they have another narrator who recites quotes from Bible, from Josephus, uh, from other literary sources. And so this format was my inspiration for my series, Ancient Lives on the Nile. Oh my goodness, it kind of started as a joke with myself to, to call my apartment my studio. It is a studio apartment. And so and then I just decided, you know what? No, this is going to be a thing. And because I would love to be able to continue to a point where it can grow into something 
really legit. Right now, it's just me doing things in my apartment. This is where everybody starts. And so what I would love to be able to do is to build this into something that looks even more professional than I've tried to make it look so far. And I would love to be able to, and I think it's too early to do it right now, but I would love to be able to bring in other scholars to lend their expertise to certain topics. So the, the point of the videos that I'm making with my studio is to present ancient Egypt through the perspective of Egyptologists, one, so that Egyptologists have complete control over the subject matter, so that there's no sensationalism that's going to be thrown in just to hook an audience. You know, this is what I don't like. My other, and this is probably the most major goal that I have with this whole series, is to present ancient Egypt through the perspective, through the voice of ancient Egyptians themselves, because there is too much, in my mind, in the mainstream of just people being fed this. They're, they're actually being encouraged, I think, to think of ancient Egypt as this, this very fantasy, mystical place that doesn't even you know, exist within the geography of our current world. Like it's just on its own plane. And a lot of times I feel like ancient Egyptians themselves are being objectified, that people today don't even see them as people. And that's one reason why I don't like the word mummy. I try to avoid using the term mummy when I teach. I always say preserved people, or I just use the person's name. I say, hey, kids, you want to meet Ramesses II? He's right here. I got a great photo of him. Because I think that this term mummy is treating the individual as more of an object, a museum object. And they are, I mean, there's, there's that whole um, issue of displaying a mummified individual in a museum. But I really want people to understand Egypt and ancient Egyptians as people that they can actually identify with. And this is one of my goals when I teach courses, for example, and I, this, this has led to some really great feedback from the students. I received a really lovely email from a student saying that I made them view ancient Egypt in a way that they never expected. If I can do that to one person who actually says it to me, I'm imagining I'm doing it for even more people. And this is what I want. I just, I want people to have a much greater respect for ancient Egypt. And so I'm also avoiding the cliche topics and I'm going for, well, so far it's stuff that I'm personally interested in with the international relations, but I would, I would love to be able to expand, maybe even have a real studio space and definitely improve my technology, um, incorporate other scholars, have some great input from other Egyptologists and just, you know, and just hopefully it will grow. It will grow and it will be, be educational in a way that's not sensationalized while at the same time, hopefully not being boring. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, from this point, that's that's what I can say about what I hope the future of Perhai Studio would be. Well, I wish you luck with it because it sounded and looks really cool. Thank so you. I hope you can do more Thank with it. You. I certainly look forward to tracking what cool content you produce. <laughs> and because just because you opened up the, the floodgates and talked about sensationalized versions of Egypt, I have to ask. I was I was trying so hard not to, but now I have to. How do you feel about that Gods of Egypt movie? Oh, I haven't seen it, but I, I've seen images and I don't want to see it. <laughs> um, that's just going to, I know, make me angry. Same with the movie Exodus. I don't, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to come anywhere close to that because it's just going to annoy me. I mean, seriously. 
<laughs> I don't want to be that annoyed. <sighs> I will say and- it's got one redeeming quality because I did subject myself to it. And maybe it's because I'm not an Egyptologist, but I will say it's one of those movies that you put in the certain classification of it's so utterly bad and terrible that it's actually good. Oh, really? Like it's okay. so horribly off and wrong, but it's so horribly entertaining because it's so wrong. So you spend like the entire hour and whatever laughing your ass off. So if you want something to just make you laugh and just be funny because you can make so much fun out of it, that's why you would watch it. Okay. Well, that, like, that's, like it doesn't yeah, even try to take like... itself so seriously that like you'll just. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was under a different impression. Uh, so okay, with with the with that kind of a recommendation, that does sound like something I would be entertained by. I like it when they don't take themselves seriously. At least there is that. But the ones that do, Exodus and the mm-hmm. the new Mummy. I haven't watched the new Mummy. Pretend it doesn't exist. Um, oh, the one with Tom Cruise. You know what? Yeah. Yeah, it, it that one's weird because it, it like tries to be serious, but but not like an actual ancient Egypt mummy series. It just tries to take itself seriously, like a a drama of there's a it's it's like trying to pretend it's some sort of horror movie, but it's more drama than horror. So then what you just end up with is this bad like it's an adventure where they run around and then they happen to resurrect a mummy which could stand in for any kind of vampire or creature, and then they're running from it and it's like evil, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's a problem with a lot of sequels, I find. As they go on, they start to become more serious, and that's when they lose their fun, you know? I mean, obviously, because it's being serious. Alien versus Predator, uh, but I love this movie. I love love it, it. too. It's so stupid, but I love it. Oh, man. And one of my favorite parts is when when they're looking at the the quote-unquote pyramid, and they're saying that this pyramid was the inspiration for the buildings of Indonesia and Mesoamerica and Egypt. And I'm thinking, but how about those other buildings were the inspiration for this one? Why would these other cultures take just a piece of it? Okay. And then you've got this guy, uh, the, the very cute Italian man, archaeologist, who uh, <laughs> can read Mayan, Mayan so quickly. And he's just like, yeah, I don't need any kind of transliteration or dictionary. I'm just totally going to read this thing I've never seen before talking about something that has nothing to do with what I study and I'm going to know it. I just, I love that in movies. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's so stupid, but it's so entertaining. And definitely, like, I would say that's the only reason I liked Gods of Egypt because it is not trying to take itself seriously like it knows it's utterly ridiculous because in what world ever do your egyptian gods turn into like transformer type metal things and fly around so yeah i i just all i'll say is it's entertaining and (laughs) you will spend that entire hour whatever laughing because it's so funny I so like it. if you want to pick me like up because you're having a bad day, just watch it. I promise <laughs> it'll get those endorphins going. And that goes for <laughs> anyone else who may be listening. It, it is really worth a laugh. I'm going to try something a little different. And I'm very excited because we have just recently gone through a, a rename, announced our, our rebranding of sorts for the podcast. So we've changed our name from the Ozymandias Project to Ancient Office Hours. I wanted to sort of incorporate the name and the vibe. And so I have this really fun little section that I will be calling Odyssey's End. What that really means is that 
taking inspiration from Greek mythology and history. The number three is a, a number of a lot of significance uh, for other cultures too, but I'm just using the Greeks as my example. But, you know, there are three fates, three furies. There's usually three people on a quest. So I thought it'd be fun to start ending the podcast. Well, before the poem, of course, <laughs> with three questions at the end of the actual interview portion. And these are meant to just sort of be a little fun and a little educational at the same time. So let's see how we, we do with this one and hope it works. First question I have for you is if you could meet any person or animal from either mythology or history, who would it be and why? Well, I mean, I, I, I would love to meet Akhenaten, of course. And I just want to ask him, dude, <laughs> what is all of this? This is weird looking. It's just weird in general. And then I would like to ask him, am I right? You know, tell him all of my hypotheses and say, am, am I right? And I would love him to say, yes, you know everything. <laughs> That's a fun one. Yeah, I, I would meet him. But Honestly, instead of asking him all of the hypotheses, I would just be like, hi, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy or are you just devoted? Okay, that's all I want to know. Yes, Akhenaten, great answer because, oh my gosh, I identify with that. He's always my answer. Let's be real. <laughs> Second question for you is, in your undergrad years, did you go to your professor's office hours? No, she never had any. I we just uh we kind of hung out and we had a, a library, a little mini library. And so we were all such nerds and we just like we just hung out there and then she'd be in her office just doing whatever she was doing and she'd come in and yeah, we she didn't really have office hours. So we just kind of popping by and shooting the breeze. Sometimes we would go out to dinner, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that's a little unorthodox. I've never, I will admit, I've never heard of a professor not offering office hours, but hey, at least you got to see her and speak to her in, in a different context, which is great. I mean, so maybe you didn't go to her actual office hours, but you still had the more personalized interaction, yep. which it, it sounds like you would get at office hours. It just did not happen to be at her office. And so yep. the last question I have for you is, if you were to make a case, why should students go to office hours? Why are they valuable? Well, being on the side of having office hours, this first of all, I shouldn't say this, but we're sitting there doing nothing and we would love for students, please, to come into office hours and talk to us because we're so miserable sitting there looking at the, uh, the wall. You know, so often students are scared. The first time I had office hours, it was the first time I ever taught and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Sitting there trying to pretend to be Professor Jackson. And then the student comes in and she's so nervous. And because she, she was, for, for her, I was a professor, right? For me, I was just like, I am a graduate student pretending. <laughs> and uh, she was really nervous to ask questions. And so going to office hours um, is a really good way to establish rapport with the professor. It's a great way for you to have quality time one-on-one. -on -one. It's a great time if you, if you get, because I can be kind of nasty on grading papers, but I, I do it because it makes them work harder. And uh, like, I am very thorough with my comments is what I'm saying. And sometimes this is intimidating and I get it. I understand. I'm sorry, my students, but it does help you, I swear. And if you get a paper like that, 
from your from your professor go to them and say can we go over this sentence by sentence so i can understand what's going on it's good to go to them when you have an idea for a paper run it by them give them different ideas that you have and then they can brainstorm with you if you're having trouble figuring out how to study for an exam go to your professor and say look i'm struggling I don't know how I, I got a bad grade on this exam. I didn't know how to study for it. Can you give me any any ideas for what methods I could use to study? We we love that because if you don't ask questions, and this is another thing that I do every time I teach every single meeting, I ask at least three times, does anybody have any questions? Ask questions, please. I mean, I understand if this is intimidating. I always got intimidated when I went to other professors' office hours because I'm such an awkward person in general. And sometimes they look at you with those squinty eyes, kind of like, what are you doing? Anyway, <laughs> but it's probably just because they were staring at the computer too long. But if you have questions and you're too, and you're too intimidated, to, you're too shy to ask in class, go to their office hours and ask. Ask any question that you possibly can. It, it is your time to have that one-on-one -on -one session with the professor. And let me tell you, professors do not want to fail you. They want you to get that A. They want you to get that B or even that C. Cs are still good grades, guys. Cs are still good grades, don't worry. They want you to succeed. They do. And so you can only get out of a class what you put into it. And so if you need that help, you have to ask for it. And office hours are the best place to do that. 100% as someone who lived in her professor's office hours, I swear I never left. Oh, she had to kick me out at the end of the day because she'd be like, I need to go home and feed my cats, please. And I was like, oh, OK, I guess I'll leave. <laughs> so I totally understand that and would agree with all of it. And so now on to the last portion of the podcast, I ask every guest if they would read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then you don't need to have the most eloquent, erudite answer in the world, but just what are your quick reactions to reading it? You know, what is the meaning of this poem? What is it trying to tell us? And, you know, what do you take away from it? Brings me back to senior year in high school. We would get poems to read cold and then we'd have to write an essay about them in class oh my goodness okay I'm so scared I feel like Professor F Professor Mr. Phyllis is breathing down my neck right now <laughs> mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well, those passions read, yet, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I mean, obviously, it's about a statue. It's just uh, Ramesses, right? The statue of Ramesses. I remember way back in the day. For me, it's it's so interesting the way that poets. And so, I mean, one thing that was always interesting to me, and I'm also thinking about Keats, Ode on a Grecian Urn. What these poets often are interested in is this captured moment of time that just persists for eternity. And I always thought that that was really interesting. In this poem, Shelley interprets Ramesses II as somebody who is, is very uh, intimidating, might have something to do with the, the colossal size of the statue. And it's interesting that he sees in this statue, and, and I'm picturing Ramesses II in my mind, who in his art, he doesn't look overbearing. He doesn't look scary. You know, for me, when Egyptologists look at his art, we see a very placid face. But Shelley is depicting Ramesses here as somebody who is very hard, frowning even. And that's so interesting to me. And I'm just wondering also if he is quite possibly influenced by the way Ramesses is depicted in the Bible, because these were all Christian men, if I am correct, or at least they were raised knowing their their Bible. In the Bible, it's Ramesses II, who is the king of the Exodus. And so he's depicted as a very you know, fierce and unforgiving king. And I'm just wondering if, if also Shelley is being in, uh, influenced by this perception of Ramesses II, if indeed he recognized this statue as Ramesses II. Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting because I did not think about that, actually, because, yeah, I, you know, I studied Egyptian art for, you know, one class or whatever. But I do remember, yes, he's a very his art usually is not harsh. It's very kind of serene, almost like like an eternal gaze, mm-hmm. very calm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the, the portrayal of him in the, in the Bible 
and how that could lead to someone thinking he was this like horrible, evil, dictatorial to the Hebrews of old. Yes, he was the villain, but to the Egyptians themselves, I mean, he was just doing what a lot of Egyptian kings did. It's interesting from that perspective, definitely. And we'll want to think about that more myself. You know, what I think is, is because he's taking this knowledge in the statue in its broken form, it's a, a commentary almost by Shelley on the, the fleeting nature of political power, right? It's that this king, he thought he was going to live forever or his monuments, his civilization would last forever because he's so powerful. And the fact is that we wouldn't know about him except for the artisans who created the statue, one. And then two, for the archaeologists, the little people who have to go and dig it up and find and tell his story. So one omnipresent guy who says, you know, I'm the greatest ever can't do it. You, you will be forgotten. You know, no one can beat time. Yeah, all, all power is fleeting. But also, while I, I agree with that, he at the same time is saying, however, the statue is still enduring because I'm here looking at it, even though it's in pieces, even though, yeah, all of this time has passed and, and the king did not survive eternity. He still kind of did because we still have these pieces here. And oh, I love these poets at this time. Yeah, no, they're so poetic, really, about what they do. I mean, they write the stuff. Uh, the meaning is, is multi-layered. And yeah, you're right. There is something to be said about it. I mean, it, it's still here. But I mean, mm. the statue may remain, but the civilization itself is gone. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, oh, that in invites what is actually lasting. And do we have the statue if people don't help us discover it, right? Mm. Or if mm -hmm. people don't help us make the statue, you know, poetry is subjective, but also it's, <laughs> it's confusing. And, you know, it's okay. I sympathize with you because I hated analyzing poetry in school. That was like the worst thing when I had to analyze poetry. So I find it hilarious how I spend a lot of my time contemplating a poem in my adult <laughs> life. But if we're going to think about it, though, in, in terms of, yes, he survived through the statue, but also his power was fleeting in life and that his whole mm. civilization is gone, even mm. if he mm. thought it would last a thousand years, eternity, whatever. The last question I like to ask all guests, because it's a very interesting, diverse question that if you think about our world today, is there a modern Ozymandias? Is there something that we think is like the greatest ever right now? And then in like 2000 years, are we going to look back and be like, well, that was kind of horrible. Why do we do that? I, I have an answer, but it's not appropriate. <laughs> I think it's, it is so difficult to answer that because even in our current era, we are so quick to demolish things that are even recently built in terms well, of Well, this could buildings. be a, a, um, a person, a place, a, right. a thing. It could even but, be a theoretical. But even with that, I mean, we, we just kind of steamroll over things so often. Somebody the other day said, democracy. Democracy is our Ozymandias. And I'm like, oh, dang. <laughs> Oh my goodness, mine was a little bit more harsh than that. <laughs> I don't know how much more harsh than democracy. I'm like, let's see, we've had democracy, we've had capitalism, we've had technology like iPhones, we've had people, we've had some Putins, some Trump. I was gonna say the entire United. Sorry, my fellow America. I love the USA. Don't worry, you guys. <laughs> we we are rather inflated in our opinion of ourselves. Can say the Pax Americana if that's a better stand-in. Mm, sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I'm like, how do I help you along with the like not sounding so? Told you, I told you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you could probably narrow that to like American exceptionalism, the, mm. the idea of yes. it. Yes, bravo. Yes, right there. 
Exactly. We have people in other countries that, that will say uh, the United States is the greatest country in the world. You have people in the United States that say the United States is the greatest country in the world. And this really is an inflated opinion. And I think a lot of people don't realize that until they, they move here. I think the moral of the story is that everyone is prone to thinking their own country is the greatest, and it really takes perspective of leaving it and experiencing something else to realize where you are from, whatever, isn't perfect. It's not the best country ever. You can, that doesn't mean it's not a great country, Mm. but I just, I hate the language of absolutes where it's like, this is the best and you can't have anything else. So it's almost like, let's strip the language of absolutes where we can say America is a great country because it has done and modeled and brought so much good but like look at our past look at all the stuff are we the greatest ever no Mm. I I don't think so we're great but we're not that great you know yeah yeah you know there's so much room for improvements and and that's that's what it is when you have a lot of people who say that it's the greatest that means that it can't get better but it can it can always be better That's a great answer though it's very different we'll leave our audience with this idea of Should we be using absolutes to describe not only countries, but just in general, because we use absolutes and absolutist language, which implies no room for fault or growth or and, you know, and it extends to the other way, too. So when we say something's the greatest, we can also say something's the worst. And I'm like, well, is that implying that it can't get worse? I think we've seen there can always be something worse. Absolutist language. It's not great. I will leave people to ponder that. But thank you so much for joining me. It has been so fun to just talk and put our heads together today. Thank you. It was so wonderful being here. You're so easy to talk to. And it was a lot of fun for me. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.